Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana, and let's get started. So last time we read about Elijah having the showdown at the altar, praying for rain, and then fleeing for his life. And I wanted to just reread a bit of the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 19 where we left off before picking up because there's this, there is a significance about 40 days and 40 nights here. So he flees, he goes to lay down under a tree, he's dealing with depression, feeling terrible and just exhausted after everything that's happened. And then it says, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 5, then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head were some bread baked in hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai the mountain of God there. He came to a cave where he spent the night. So the flood came during Noah's time for 40 days and 40 nights. And some areas of scripture just say 40 days, some add also 40 nights. Uh, Moses was on this same mountain, Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. When he received the 10 commandments, Jesus fasted alone in the wilderness for 40 days. And when he rose again, he appeared to people for 40 days. <clears throat> and here, um, it is Elijah, uh, journeying for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, where Moses had received the commandments. So he's in the cave, he spends the night, and here's where we pick up first Kings 19, uh, the rest of verse nine. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. So Elijah is not the first person he has met on this mountain, Moses being the other. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. I feel like I need a little more verbiage for dramatic effect for the earthquake, but that's all it gives us. Anyway, there was an earthquake. Verse 12. And after the earthquake, there was a fire but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. It does seem like he'd be taking shelter in the cave, doesn't it? All of a sudden, the gentle whisper comes and it does seem more safe. Anyway, and a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously serve the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So he says the same thing. In verse 15, then the Lord told him, 
go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel Meloah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So right now, Ahab is still king in Israel, and his wife is Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel is kind of a famous female character in the Bible, and is the one who killed uh it has a history of killing all of the prophets of God and then had it out for Elijah. That's why he fled. So God has just told him to appoint Jehu to be the new king in Israel and to appoint his own replacement, which will be Elisha. Moving on, verse Kings 19, verse 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, First, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So, in modern day, if someone comes up, some stranger comes up to you, throws their jacket on you, you don't just run after them and say, I'll follow you. But in biblical times, apparently in this instance, this has the significance of appointing a disciple or student. Um, there's other instances of a person using their cloak over another for significance, such as Ruth. Yeah, Ruth and Boaz. So, Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Then he went with Elisha as his assistant. So, he literally destroyed his method of survival. He destroyed his career to go be a student of this prophet. First Kings 20. About that time, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mobilized his army, supported by the chariots and horses of 32 allied kings. They went to be, uh, besiege Samaria, the capital of Israel, and launched attacks against it. Ben-Hadad sent messengers into the city to relay this message to King Ahab of Israel. So... Ahab is still the king, still married to Jezebel, and he gets this message from Ben-Hadad. This is what Ben-Hadad says, Your silver and gold are mine, and so are your wives and the best of your children. <laughs> Fighting words. All right, my lord the king, Israel's king replied, All I have is yours. Soon Ben-Hadad's messengers returned again and said, This is what Ben-Hadad says, I have already demanded that you give me your silver, gold, wives, and children, but about this time tomorrow I will send my officials to search your palace and the homes of your people. They will take away everything you consider valuable. 
Then Ahab summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, Look how this man is stirring up trouble. I already agreed with his demand that I give my wives and children in silver and gold. Don't give in to any more demands, all the elders and the people advised. Really? That was a serious agreement? I thought he was being sarcastic. I read it sarcastic. Apparently he meant it. <laughs> but his advisors say don't give in to any more demands. And yes, there is such a thing as sarcasm in the Bible. Paul has a pretty good sense of sarcasm. Verse 9. So Ahab told the messengers from Ben-Hadad, Say this to my lord the king, I will give you everything you asked for the first time, but I cannot accept this last demand of yours. So the messengers returned to Ben-Hadad with that response. Then Ben-Hadad sent this message to Ahab, May the gods strike me and even kill me, if there remains enough dust from Samaria to provide even a handful for each of my soldiers. The king of Israel sent back this answer. A warrior putting on his sword for battle should not boast like a warrior who has already won. Mm. Just threw down a challenge. Ahab's reply reached Ben-Hadad and the other kings as they were drinking in their tents. Prepare to attack, Ben-Hadad commanded his officers, so they prepared to attack the city. I feel like if this was reenacted in some TV show, this could end up being a really great episode. <laughs> Verse uh, 13. Then a certain prophet came to sing King Ahab of Israel and told him, This is what the Lord says. Do you see all these enemy forces? Today, I will hand them all over to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So, just a refresher, Israel and its kingdom um, created their own religion, their own priests, completely denied God, completely um, turned their backs from him. And it's just been one series of terrible kings after another who are terrible for the people, for the government, and the faith. And now God is basically catching the current king Ahab between a rock and a hard place and saying, listen, this other king and all of his allies are going to destroy you, but I can save you from it. He's giving him a chance to repent here. So Ahab asked, how will he do it? And the prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The troops of the provincial commanders will do it. Should we attack first? Ahab asked. Yes, the prophet answered. So Ahab mustered the troops of the 232 provincial commanders. Then he called out the rest of the army of Israel, some 7,000 men. About noontime, as Ben-Hadad and the 32 allied kings were still in their tents, drinking themselves into a stupor, the troops of the provincial commanders marched out to the city as the first contingent. As they approached, Ben-Hadad's scouts reported to him, some troops are coming from Samaria. Take them alive, Ben-Hadad commanded, whether they have come for peace or for war. But Ahab's provincial commanders and the entire army had now come out to fight. Each Israelite soldier killed his Aramean opponent, and suddenly the entire Aramean army panicked and fled. So Ahab's 7,000 men come out to fight a troop 
will guess 32 times the size, except every single one of these 7,000 men kill their opponent. None of them fall. And so this army they're fighting realizes this is not normal. And it completely freaks them out. And they take off. So the enemy has fled. The Israelites chased them, but King Ben-Hadad and a few of his charioteers escaped on horses. However, the king of Israel destroyed the other horses and the chariots and slaughtered the Arameans. Afterward, the prophet said to King Ahab, Get ready for another attack. Begin making plans now, for the king of Aram will come back next spring. After their defeat, Ben-Hadad's officers said to him, The Israelite gods are gods of the hills. This is why they won. But we can beat them easily on the plains. There's logic for you. Only this time, replace the kings with field commanders. He's like, he's like, you kings, you can't do this right. Kings, get in the background. Sit on the sidelines, your royal highness. Let the real, let the real commanders run this show. That's basically what he just said. Verse 25, recruit another army like the one you lost. Give us the same number of horses, chariots, and men, and we will fight against them on the plains. There's no doubt that we will beat them. Big talk. So, King Bedad, Ben Hadad did as they suggested. Of course he did. Verse 26, the following spring, he called up the Aramean army and marched out against Israel, this time at Aphek. Israel then mustered its army, set up supply lines, and marched out for battle. But the Israelite army looked like two little flocks of goats in the comparison to the vast Aramean forces that filled the countryside. Then the man of God went to the king of Israel and said, This is what the Lord says. So he's speaking to Ahab again here. The Arameans have said, The Lord is a God of the hills and not of the plains. So, I will defeat this vast army for you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So, he's like, ready for round two. Here I come. Uh, Verse 29. The two armies camped opposite each other for seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle began. I wonder what that camp out for seven days is about. I don't know. The Israelites killed 100,000 Aramean foot soldiers in one day. So remember, Ahab's troop is about 7,000 men, and they killed 100,000 of their enemy. The rest fled into the town of Aphek, but the wall fell on them and killed another 27,000. Ben-Hadad fled into the town and hid in a secret room. Ben-Hadad's officers said to him, Sir, We have heard that the kings of Israel are merciful, so let's humble ourselves by wearing burlap around our waists and putting ropes on our heads and surrender to the king of Israel. Then perhaps he will let you live. So they put on burlap and ropes, and they went to the king of Israel and begged. Your servant Behedad says, please let me live. The king of Israel responded, is he still alive? He is my brother. And then took this as a good sign and quickly picked up on his words. Yes, they said, your brother, Ben Hadad. (laughs) They're like, uh, okay, sure, your brother. Go and get him, the king of Israel told them. And when Ben Hadad arrived, Ahab invited him up into his chariot. Ben Hadad told him, I will give back the towns my father took from your father. 
and you may establish places of trade in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will release you under these conditions. So they made a new treaty and Ben-Hadad was set free. Gosh, I cannot pronounce his name correctly consistently. Meanwhile, the Lord instructed one of the group of prophets to say to another man, hit me. But the man refused to hit the prophet. Then the prophet told him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, a lion will kill you as soon as you leave me. And when he had gone, a lion did attack him and kill him. Well, now that just seems unfair to me. The guy was just trying to be nice and didn't want to punch a prophet in the face. Anyway, I wasn't there. Verse 37, then the prophet turned to another man and said, hit me. So he struck the prophet and and wounded him. He's, he's like, I'm not getting eaten by a lion. Punch the guy. Verse 38, the prophet placed a bandage over his eyes to disguise himself and then waited beside the road for the king. As the king passed by, the prophets called out to him, sir, I was in the thick of battle and suddenly a man brought me a prisoner. He said, guard this man. If for any reason he gets away, you will either die or pay a fine of 75 pounds of silver. But while I was busy doing something else, the prisoner disappeared. So he concocts this story that he is, a, this prophet concocts a story that he was a soldier in battle who was given a prisoner to take charge of, and through his own neglect, the, the prisoner escaped. The king replies, well, it's your own fault, the king replied. You have brought the judgment on yourself. Then the prophet quickly pulled the bandage from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. The prophet said to him, this is what the Lord says, because you have spared the man I said must be destroyed. Now you must die in his place and your people will die instead of his people. So the king of Israel went home to Samaria angry and sullen. So remember, Ahab was supposed to kill Ben-Hadad, and instead he took an opportunity to try to strike a deal, and they made a treaty. And because he completely disobeyed God's command, now he gets the punishment that was supposed to come for Ben-Hadad. So remember that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus all had this 40-day fast. Moses, when he was on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, Elijah, when he was traveling to Mount Sinai, and Jesus in the wilderness. Now in Luke chapter 9, these three all meet up. So chapter 9, verse 28, this is, um, Jesus is with Peter and John and James and he takes them up to a mountain. So his time is pretty close. He takes them up on a mountain, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, which is basically just like what happened to Moses on Mount Sinai. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, which he does a lot, 
Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as, his, as he was saying this, a cloud overshouted them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone, and they didn't tell anyone at the time what they'd seen. So, the significance started several hundred years earlier, where Elijah has a, a mirroring experience to Moses. So, there's this great comment here about 19 verse 11 to 13 which is where God sends the windstorm and the earthquake and the fire and Elijah didn't hear God's voice in any of those but he heard it in the whisper Elijah knew that the sound of a gentle whisper was God's voice he realized what God that God doesn't reveal himself only in powerful miraculous ways to look for God only in something big, rallies, mega churches, conferences, highly visible leaders, maybe to miss him because he is often found gently whispering in the quietness of a humbled heart. Are you listening for God? Step back from the noise and activity of your busy life and listen humbly and quietly for his guidance. It may come when you least expect it. You know, I feel like I hear God not so much when I'm in any kind of church service. When I read scriptures like this, I do, but I'll say I'll say the the times where I feel like I heard God speaking directly to me um would be when I'm out in nature and I'm just taking a quiet moment to listen to his creation. Be it the wind, the birds, the bugs, whatever it is that's making noise, just listening to that and thinking about how God made it all. And that's when I get messages from me from him. The ones that have been significant in my journey. Here's another comment talking about the moment when Elijah put his cloak on Elisha's shoulders. The cloak was the most important article of clothing a person could own. It was used as protection against the weather, as bedding, as a place to sit, and as luggage. It could be given as a pledge for a debt or torn into pieces to show grief. Elijah put his cloak on Elijah's shoulders to show that he would become Elijah's successor. Later, when the transfer of authority was complete, Elijah was left. Uh, left his cloak for Elisha. And here is a comment about uh, the other kingdoms of the time. With two evil and two good kings up to this point, the southern kingdom Judah wavered between godly and ungodly living. But the northern kingdom Israel had eight evil kings in succession, to punish both kingdoms for living their own way instead of following God, God allowed other nations to gain strength and become their enemies. Three main enemies threatened Israel and Judah during the next two centuries, Aram, Assyria, and Babylon. Aram, the first to rise to power, presented an immediate threat to Ahab and Israel, which is what we were just reading about. 
So in future scripture, we'll also read more about Assyria and Babylon and their um, wars and battles with Israel and or Judah. Here is a comment on chapter 20, verse 13, about God fighting for Israel. God defeated the Aramean army for Ahab so that Ahab would know that God alone is the Lord. Despite this great victory and the one that followed on the plains, Ahab continued to live without God. Evidence of God's greatness surrounds us, but like Ahab, we can choose to ignore it and go in our own way. But when we do, as with the evil king of Israel, disaster will strike. Open your eyes to the evidence, the victories that God is winning for you, then rededicate yourself to him. In the New Testament, last time we read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, from verse 5 through chapter 8, verse 15. And I'm going to reread a couple passages just to refresh your memory on this. It was about the church's generosity. And in chapter 8, starting in verse 11. Now you should finish what you started let eagerness, let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Now, we're moving on to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16, Titus and his companions. But thank God he has given Titus the same enthusiasm for you that I have. Titus welcomed your request that he visit you again. In fact, he himself was very eager to go and see you. We are also sending another brother with Titus. All the churches praise him as a preacher of the good news. He was appointed by the churches to accompany us as we take the offering to Jerusalem, a service that glorifies the Lord and shows our eagerness to help. We are traveling together to guard against any criticism for the way we are handling this generous gift. We are careful to be honorable before the Lord, but we also want everyone else to see that we are honorable. We are also sending with them another of our brothers who has proven himself many times and has shown in, my occasion, in many occasions how eager he is. He is now even more enthusiastic because of his great confidence in you. If anyone asks about Titus, say that he is my partner who works with me to help you. And the brothers with him have been sent by the churches, and they bring honor to Christ. So show them your love, and prove to all the churches that our boasting about you is justified. Chapter 9 I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem, for I know how eager you are to help, and I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that, that uh, in Macedonia that you in Greece were ready to send an offering a year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that started up many of the Macedonian believers to begin giving. That's nice. Spreading the generosity bug. But I am sending these brothers to be sure you really are ready and I have been telling them and your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. 
we would be embarrassed, not to mention your own embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found that you weren't ready after all I had told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready, but I want to be willing I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others, as the scriptures say. And then he's quoting the Old Testament here. They freely, uh, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Which is a quote from Psalm 112, verse 9. Picking back up in verse 10. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of the Christ, uh, good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift to wonderful for words. So this section talks a lot about money and this, um, this fundraiser basically, that they're doing, which is supposed to help the Christians in Jerusalem. And this one comment here I'll read kind of draws this comparison between this emphasis Paul is making on we have to be incredibly careful about how we handle this money and how people see us handling this money to modern day. Uh, so, this is in response to verses 18 to 21. Another brother was traveling with Paul and Titus, another brother in quotes, because that's what he says, a man who was elected by the churches to also take the large financial gift to Jerusalem. Paul explained that by traveling together, there could be no suspicion and people would know that the gift was being handled honestly. The church should not need to worry that the bearers of the collection would misuse the money. Paul used every safeguard to maintain integrity in the collection uh, of money for Jer the Jerusalem church. Those outside the church can view skeptically the way believers handle money in the church. Financial scandals among high-profile ministers have alerted the non-believing world to the unethical gimmicks that some Christians use. It is possible to avoid to avoid mismanagement of God's resources. Does your church organization have a system of checks and balances that prevent wrongful behavior? Are there financial practices in your ministry that need to be reviewed? Christians have the highest standard of financial responsibility. I like that because I kind of feel like a lot of the message I hear about finances having grown up um, in churches would number one be give, 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 um, which is, it's good. I mean, the money goes to good things. And if you don't ask, people aren't going to do it. Um, and then 
tithing specifically, which is also about giving, or just general financial management in your personal household, uh, but not often about the checks and balances taken within a church to show good practice. You know, that's not exactly something people are going to talk openly about, but I kind of think maybe they should. The other thing here is Jesus was the model I think Paul is drawing on when he, when Jesus talked about um, the woman who came to donate this tiny little amount that she had, just a couple coins, and that's all that she had. And Jesus said that woman gave more than these rich guys because they gave from their wealth. And she, in her poverty, gave essentially what he's saying is she gave a higher ratio of her income than they did. She gave a higher percentage of what she had to give than they did. And her spirit, her intentions were better than theirs, even though the amount she dumped in was, was far less and people might not otherwise think much of it. But to him, he thought a lot about her. That's what he noticed, not the amount of money. You know, God doesn't actually need our money, <laughs> but people do. <laughs> our society is very financially based and God will use whoever he needs to, to take care of his people or, or do his will. But whether or not we're going to give ourselves the opportunity to be part of it, I think that's where our choice lies. <music> Thank you.